All right. So I, I uh, actually don't have enough time to get through this whole topic today. So we're going to split it up, and I don't know how much we're going to split it up into. Part of what we're doing with this series is we're kind of laying out the theology of spirit chaplain. Sometimes, and I don't like doing this, but sometimes in order to do that, I have to compare it with other theology that's out there. Uh, we are getting into the topic now of the Holy Spirit, and probably there is nothing that has split Christendom more than the topic of the Holy Spirit. There is more disagreement about the Holy Spirit, I think, than any other topic. I do believe that's the work of the devil. Uh, he doesn't want us tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's doing everything he can to obfuscate it and make sure we can't see it. Um, so I'm going to take some time today on one teaching that, that I've come across that I believe is really dangerous, only because I think it gives people a false uh, sense of, of salvation. And then next week, we'll be taking on some more. So get ready. I normally don't ever talk about other pastors. You guys know that. I try not to. But I can't, I can't avoid it now. When we get to the Holy Spirit, we kind of have to start saying, this is what we believe, and here's why, and here's what you may have heard, and this is what we don't believe. I, I, I don't know any other way of doing it. The Holy Spirit is incredibly important. It's the third member that we're getting to of the, of the trilogy. We did God the Father, God the Son. Here we are in the Holy Spirit. Incredibly important. Before I get into the topic of the Holy Spirit, there's another topic that comes up around the Holy Spirit an awful lot, and it comes from uh, every synoptic gospel. This is uh, what it looks like in Matthew. This is Jesus talking. He said, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be given people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's him, he says, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, not in this age and not in the age to come. So basically Jesus is saying, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, go to hell, go directly to hell, don't pass, go, don't pass, don't collect $200. It's done. There's no forgiving, there's no coming back from that. It's the only time he says this. It seems so out of character for Jesus and God to say this. It has scared people for centuries. It should. It, I mean, I don't think Jesus said this because he didn't want to scare people. I think he really needed people to understand the Holy Spirit is very, very important, and you don't blaspheme. And this also shows up in Luke. Luke changes it just a little bit because he puts it in a slightly different place. He talks about how if you confess Jesus before men, he will confess you before his Father, and that's where he puts this in. Anybody who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, the Gospel of Mark adds another detail. It put this into a, in, into a very interesting place. What's happened in, in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus has just cast out a demon uh, from, from a little boy. And the Pharisees are trying to dismiss what he's done. And they said, you know why he does this? Because he's in league with the devil. That's why. And that's when Jesus says something very famous because Lincoln quotes it. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Doesn't even make sense. Why would Satan be casting out his own army? You know, it makes no sense at all. And so in the Mark gospel, this is where that comes in. He says, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. Now what's happened is he has shot down the, the people who are trying to say, you know, he's casting out demons because the, the Satan gives him power. And as he's walking away, he says this to his disciples. He says, anybody, any, sins of men will be forgiven, whatever blasphemy they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal life and the, uh, eternal sin. And then this is added then by the, by the writer of, of the Gospel of Mark, which people believe were actually, uh, was Peter's translator. So it's kind of Peter's Gospel in a way. Because they were saying, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So he's really specific here. This is what blasphemy looks like, he says. 
They were actually taking what I'm doing and they're attributing to Satan. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So it's very, very specific there. Um, I would say this because I have people ask me, is it possible that I'm cooked? Is it possible that no matter what I do, no matter what I believe, it's too late for me now because I've already committed the unforgivable sin? Is that possible? Uh, My glib answer to that is if you're asking me that question, you probably didn't do it. All right. Uh, probably not. And if this is the, the standard, I'm really sure that you haven't done it. I'm pretty, you know, reasonably sure that because you haven't had the opportunity to do it, you haven't seen the Holy Spirit work this way and attribute it to Satan. I don't think so. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's been written about this sin uh, and what it means. And a lot of people have said, and this kind of sounds right to me, uh, I wish I could say that's definitely it. Um, and that is that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable because without the Holy Spirit, you can't come to Jesus. So if you have cut yourself off from the Spirit, there's no way you're going to come to Jesus. It's kind of a, a matter of fact sort of a thing. Um, I love that explanation because it makes sense. It kind of fits into the character, the nature of God. And if you're still asking the question, then for sure you didn't do it because the Holy Spirit's still convicting you. Uh, The problem is that word doesn't mean that. That word means blasphemy. I mean, I went back and looked at it, but I did find something very interesting that I've never seen in a commentary anywhere. The base word for blasphemy in the Greek has kind of changed today. It just means blasphemy today. But if you look at the time it was done, we have another word that we get from that same root word, and it's blame. So blame and blasphemy both come from the same root word uh, in Greek. This was interesting to me. You know, maybe there's something about that. Uh, I don't know. I can't tell you for sure exactly. Well, this would, you know, give me your definition and give me, what did you do? And I can't give you, you know, grace. Well, I'm, you're, you're safe. You know, I, I can't do that. Uh, I don't think anybody can. There's probably some people who would try. I wouldn't. I would just simply say, assume that you have not committed that sin and, and press into God as much as you can. I'm, I'm pretty sure God would reveal it to you. And I'm also pretty sure that there is some truth to this. When you've seared your heart against the Holy Spirit, uh, you're cooked. But you wouldn't be asking the question. You wouldn't be here if that's the case. But I will say this. I think we can all agree. You need to be careful how we speak about the Holy Spirit. Very, very careful. And there's a lot of people uh, right now in Christendom firing shots at each other on both sides of the big divide. And they're saying some things that make me nervous. You know, I'm like, whoa, you know, I wouldn't go that far on any of this. I may disagree with people theologically, but I'm not going to speak for the Holy Spirit like some of them are. So um, I'll just say that we're not going to uh, venture too far away from what the scriptures tell us about the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're going to stay because I want to be very, very careful here because Jesus is telling us you need to be careful when you're talking about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to stay today on what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. We're safe there. And, and we're going to move on from there because the Holy Spirit's so incredibly important. Um, so one thing that we have to also kind of specify is the Holy Spirit is not a thing. It's a person. It's a being. It's the third part of trilogy. There is actually some denominations that don't believe that, but that's basic Christianity, Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is a person. First of all, you can blaspheme him. I don't really know if you can blaspheme a thing. But the other thing is we know the Holy Spirit has emotions. And we know this because it shows up in Ephesians. Uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul says this, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, we're talking about grief share. When you, if some of you have been through grief, you know what grief is like. I think I'm looking around, almost everybody here has been through some level of grief. Grief is when somebody you love who loves you is suddenly taken away from you. That's the basis of grief. It's not just sadness. 
It's grief. And you know they're gone. They're taken away and they're gone. That's grief. And that's why uh, grief can be inconsolable for some people because they just weren't ready to lose that connection. You know, when Victoria and I met in, you know, in, in Kiev, we had to deal with the INS. We had seven months of struggle and paperwork before we see each other. And I flew back to Kiev for her birthday a couple months in the middle of this thing. And we spent some time together. We were sad when we parted, but we knew we'd see each other again. We weren't experiencing grief, you know. We were just simply, you know, lovesick. It wasn't really grief. That was sadness, but not grief. Grief's a whole different level. When, when you lose somebody you love to death, you will experience grief. And if you haven't, uh, then it's coming. Because well, I was surprised. My, my father uh, passed away. We opened a church in November, and my father passed away the next month. He passed away in December. Uh, he went home on December 26. I always thought he was going to be late. He was late. I think he should have gone home on the 25th, and my dad was just always late. Um, but so at the, at the time it happened, we kind of knew what was happening. His faith, had, his, his faith was fine. His, his health had failed. Uh, but, you know, he, we, we knew it was coming. We knew that, that it was going to happen, and it did. And, of course, you never want to see it happen. But, you know, it wasn't the same as someone who suddenly lost a parent. We were preparing ourselves for it. The brothers had discussed it. Um, fully convinced of my father's salvation, you know, so that was it. We also had his model. Uh, he did the funeral for my grandfather, something I never fully appreciated until I tried to do a eulogy at his funeral, how well he handled that. But so we knew how to kind of handle this situation, and yet there were still some moments, you know, when all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, I was overcome with grief, and I just wept. You know, just it hits you. It hits you suddenly without warning. It's like sneaks up on you. Uh, some, something triggers it. And sometimes it doesn't even make sense what triggers it, but something will trigger it, and then you just feel it. That's grief. Somebody you love that loved you back is gone from your life. This is what happens to the Holy Spirit. And, and that's a different picture, I think, than most of us have of the Holy Spirit. When he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, and he goes on, he's, he's actually put this in a, in a section here, and he's talking, he says, look, you need to get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Why has he put that right after that? Because these are the things that cause the Holy Spirit to grieve. Why? Because when you participate in this, you are broken connection with the Holy Spirit. You've actually created a gulf in your life between you and the Spirit, and the Spirit grieves for that. Because somebody he loves, you, and somebody you love, the Holy Spirit, is now separated from each other. Sin is separating. Until we get that taken care of, there's a separation there. That's what Paul's telling us here. The Holy Spirit has emotions, and he feels sadness when you deliberately sin. And so the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, I'm going to take a look at what, that's actually what Paul tells us about the Holy Spirit. And he has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. And we'll be back to Paul next week. But I want to look at just what Jesus says. Now, honestly, Jesus says the most about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. So, you know, those of you theology wonks, you know this. There are, th there are four Gospels. Three of them are what we call the synoptic Gospels, which just means they lay side by side and tell basically the same story three different ways slightly different viewpoints of the same events. Now, not all this information is in all three, but there's a lot of commonality between the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar 
in the, the, the stories they tell, though they all add come detail that the other ones missed. So those are the synoptic gospels. Those were written first. John wrote his gospel later, and it's very different. It's very different from the others. There are very few stories, by the way, that show up in all four, very few. It's almost like John deliberately wrote about the things that the other ones left out. And John uh, would have written it much later. He probably read at least one of the other synoptics, and maybe he read all three, because he wrote his later. Uh, some theologians believe he wrote the Gospel of John, this might seem weird, after he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, for those of you who don't know how it ends for the disciples, um, every one of them is martyred except John. Every one of them faces an, a, a very quick death or a very un, uh, a natural death too soon, right? They've gone too soon. John actually lives to his normal and dies of old age. Uh, he gets exiled to Patmos Island uh, because the, 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 the religious uh, bigwigs are worried about him because he's, he's such a popular person. Uh, they exile him and he spends some time there. He eventually will come back though and he spends the rest of his days caring for Jesus' mother, Mary which is, if you remember, what Jesus asked him to do from the cross. So he goes and he does it. Um, and people believe that he wrote the Gospel of John after he wrote the book of Revelation, because Revelation happens on Patmos. And a lot of people believe he didn't write John until he came back. And, and uh, so he really kind of took some time to think about, I believe, what wasn't in the other Gospels. And there's detail in John, especially after Jesus is resurrected, that's not in anybody else's Gospel. There's an awful lot in the book of John about what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit that's just flat out missing from the synoptics. And I think that's because they were so busy writing that and you know, going out and starting the church, I don't think they really had time to think about, well, oh, you know what, Jesus told us all about the Holy Spirit. If you read the other Gospels, like even Luke, it's almost like they're surprised when the Holy Spirit comes. But then when you read John's, they really shouldn't have been because Jesus kind of describes in some detail what the Holy Spirit's going to be like. And so he puts that into his Gospel. Now, he interlaces it in to a lot of things Jesus says. It's almost like you get the impression is as his time grew near, as he knew he's going to be crucified, Jesus just was telling them all about the Holy Spirit. You know, he's really preparing them for his leaving and the Holy Spirit's coming. Uh, and so I'm going to just kind of run through and I'm skipping a couple things in between John 14 through 16, uh, which is where all this stuff shows up. So those of you who like to follow along, you'll have to skip some stuff along with me. I try to be accurate about where I, where I found this, but um, I know some of you would like to follow along. So if you love me, Jesus is telling them, you keep my commandments and I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper. Now some translations say comforter. Those are kind of used interchangeably. That he may abide with you forever. Abide means to stay with you forever. He's the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because they neither see him or know him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. That's John 14, 15 and through 17. And now further down in John, these things I've spoken to you while still being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all things I've said to you. That's why we have the Gospels. It's like, you know, they're, they're, all of a sudden stuff's coming back to them. You know what? Jesus said this. That's how we have that. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So the Holy Spirit, spirit of truth, it's a spirit of pre peace. And in John 14 and 28, verse 28 says this, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And 
I'm going to a great place. You'd be happy for me if you really truly love me. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, Jesus is very specific here, right? Then he will testify of me and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to testify and so will you because you know these things, because you are with me. Both of these things are going to happen. So the Holy Spirit will testify, and also you will testify. He's kind of being very, very specific, jumping up now to John 16. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you're going, because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. And I don't know how many Christians honestly believe this. I'm going to just stop right there. And I'm going to ask, you know, just I don't know if you ever thought of this, which would you rather have if you could choose, right? God said, I'm going to give you a choice. You know, I'm going to pass out little index cards. You can fill out A or B. And we'll put them in there, and God's, an angel's going to come pick them up. You have two choices. You can have the Holy Spirit close to you for the next year, or you can attend a three-day seminar taught by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus here in the flesh, three days for the whole weekend. Jesus is going to be here teaching, healing, everything. Which would you choose? Because I got to tell you something. Uh, I think three days of Jesus sounds pretty good. But he's saying, no, it's actually better if I leave. It's going to be better for you if the Holy Spirit comes. It's like, I can't even understand how that's true. And I think the reason I can't understand is because I don't have the relationship with the Holy Spirit that I'm supposed to have with the Holy Spirit. Right? If I really understood the, the Holy Spirit the way Jesus understands the Holy Spirit, I'd be, yeah, cool, give me the Holy Spirit. Uh, don't take that away. I couldn't live without him. You know? He says, but it's better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, he won't come to you. I don't know why that is, but there's rules, right? If I don't go away, he won't come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they don't believe in me, the righteousness, because I go to my father. Uh, I'm sorry, judgment of sin. Sin because they don't believe in me. That's the sin righteousness because I go to my father. That's righteousness because he's been restored to the heaven and judgment because the rule of this world has been judged. And he goes and he says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't even bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. He'll tell you things to come. He will glorify me. He will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. And then there's the last verse from this section Everything that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said what the Holy Spirit received from me, he will show to you. Now, I always thought that this talking about how the Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance, you know, going to teach all things, was for the disciples. You know, there's sometimes Jesus speaks to the disciples and we can claim that promise because we're followers of Jesus. And sometimes, you know, he says you, and it almost seems like he's talking to the disciples. That's where I always thought this was. Yeah, they got all that, but we don't. But God kind of nudged me on this because this applies to us too. The Holy Spirit guides us in the truth and it brings remembrance to you. Have you ever had an experience? Victoria and I were just talking about this. When I was younger and I had time, there were a few books I just loved. I'd read them every couple of years. You know, like I've read the Chronicles of Narnia probably four times or so. And I had other books too that I read, right? And I'd read them. And when I go back and read Princess Bride, probably read that more. But um, when I go back to read them, I'll come to a part. I go, yeah, I like this part. You know, I may have not been able to tell you it was there, but when I come across it, goes, yeah, this is one of my favorite parts here. I remember this. I like this part of the book. That doesn't happen with me with the Bible. Not much. Actually, I have a different experience with the Bible. 
I'll read it. I go, oh, come on. That was not in there before. Have you ever had that experience? It's like, that just flat out wasn't there. I have no idea who put this in my Bible. I can tell you, I've read this passage before. I never saw that, right? Why is that? That's because the Holy Spirit is revealing something to you that was hidden to your eyes last time you went through there, right? Because we have a tendency to read the Bible in kind of a, a filter of whatever's going on in our life, and we miss it. So the Holy Spirit takes you back. I found out that since I became a pastor, scriptures will like come back to me while I'm preparing something. Sometimes I've told you even like at night, I'll be woken up, there'll be a scripture bothering me. And I'll go find out that God's changing my sermon because he's giving me different scriptures. And I go, I don't know that scripture, but I must have read it. The Holy Spirit's bringing it back. He still does this today. He still does this. This is part of what he does. This is how he teaches you. He'll bring things back to your memory, remembrance. Okay. So that's kind of a cool thing the Holy Spirit does. And I'm going to take just a couple things that Jesus just said about him, because he said a lot. Um, He's a helper. He's the spirit of truth. Boy, he keeps saying he's the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of truth. There's no falsehood in the Holy Spirit. There's no phoniness. There's no fake. If you're seeing phoniness and you're seeing fake, it's not the spirit, because he's truth. Jesus says he's the spirit of truth. There's no falseness in him. And he's a teacher. He's clearly a teacher. And one of the main reasons he's here is to teach us to lead us in the truth, and to teach us all things. That's what the Holy Spirit's like primary jobs are, to help and comfort us and to lead us in the truth and teach us all things. Number one jobs of the Holy Spirit. But he also says something else in the middle of all there that has become a very interesting section of Scripture today because there's a whole new movement that wants to explain this away. He will convict the world of righteousness and of judgment, Okay. So um, this is where I'm going to probably spend the rest of the sermon because there is a movement in Christianity you may have heard of, you may even have embraced, called radical grace. Now, radical grace is a phrase that can mean a lot of things. So I'm not saying if somebody says radical grace, they're apostate. and you should. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I'm not saying anything about anybody as a Christian. I'm simply saying you may have heard that term, radical grace. Uh, radical grace is actually a teaching, though, Again, not everybody means this necessarily when they say it, but some people do. And as far as I know, and I don't know who started it, the first time I became aware of it was when Joseph Prince taught on it. Some of you know who he is. He's the kind of, he kind of dresses like a Korean motorcycle gang guy, leather jacket and stuff on stage. Uh, Very popular, uh, has has had a television show for a long time. He wrote a book called Born to Reign, R-E-I-G-N, Born to Reign. And this is where he kind of first introduce this idea of radical grace. Now, I'm going to simplify it. I'm sure the radical gracers would be really appalled at how simple I'm going to make this, uh, but this is my understanding of radical grace. Uh, God is eternal. God is an infinite God, and when Jesus died for your sins, he died for your sins eternally. Uh, So every sin you have committed, you are committing, and you will commit is already covered under the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, okay? We kind of all believe that, you know, Jesus' sacrifice doesn't go away. But because God's eternal, they say, he actually forgave you for your future sins already. So you never even have to ask for forgiveness. It's part of the teaching of radical grace. And I see a lot of you shaking your head like, you don't, but but I'm telling you, man, go read the book. This is what it tells you. And, And so what they say is his grace is so sufficient that he just forgives you and you're 
done. Now you can just live your life free of everything. You know, that's what, that's what being set free in Christ means, that you can just be free. You don't even have to. You can if you want, but you don't have to ask forgiveness. And in fact, if, if you listen to Joseph Prince, he's always talking about being free from the guilt, being free from the guilt that other churches will put upon you. An awful lot of the people who kind of grab onto this and follow are people coming out of the Catholic faith. Because the Catholic faith is very, very good at trying to make you feel guilty all the time, right? And you have to do the penance, and you know, you're wretched, and you have to do this, and you have to pay money, and you have to do all these things. And, and according to the Catholic Church, they have the keys to God's grace. This is true. I'll get to that someday. And they actually dispense it as you do what they require of you. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. They kind of are the, the gatekeeper to God's grace. And so that's why you have to do the penance they assign you. That's how you get your sins forgiven. And so a lot of people kind of rebelling against that hear what Joseph Prince is saying so I like that better you know that just makes me free I don't have to worry about this uh, and so and I heard Joseph I was going to look up the clip I didn't get time I heard Joseph Prince uh, talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit does not convict believers that's a false teaching he says and um, in fact I'll say the Holy Spirit never convicts him and and I just read a scripture and you say well, well what are we what are we going to do with that when uh he says that he's coming here and he you know jesus flat out says he's come to convict the world of sin and they hold on to that phrase the world and what the radical gracers and joseph prince says is that doesn't apply to you he, the holy spirit came to convict the world of sin not you you're a believer and he says you know when jesus uses the term the world he's using it to distinguish it from believers He'll call you my children, my sheep, my lamb, and then he'll call the people who aren't saved the world, sins of the world, right? Um, and that's true sometimes, but the problem is uh, sometimes the world means everyone, you know, and sometimes that is the translation for it. For example, and this is going to be weird. Follow me for a second. If we're going to say, though, that every time Jesus says the world, he's not talking about us. Every time he says the world, he's talking about the people who are unsaved, how do you explain this verse? And there's a bunch of these, right? For the bread of God is he, this is Jesus speaking, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's giving life to the unbelievers, not us, right? Because he's not telling us he's giving us life if you take it that way. Do you see what I'm saying? So it is always interesting to me when people take literal translations and make big deals about them, uh, how sometimes, well, but not there. You know, we're literal except for not here. And, and I, I think that uh, what Jesus is saying is everyone. The Holy Spirit's coming to convict everyone of sin, everyone of righteousness, and everyone of judgment. And that doesn't even make sense. Convicting of sin I get, but what's convicting of righteousness mean? You know, I can understand conviction of sin. I did something wrong. The Holy Spirit shows me that I do something wrong. That's conviction of sin. How do you convict somebody of righteousness? Well, that's because we're thinking about this in terms of a judge, you know, convicting you. You're getting, you know, five to 10 years. The judge hands you down the conviction. But that's not the only definition of the word conviction. We used to have, we don't think it's said very much anymore, but used to tell somebody, that's a man of his convictions. Have you ever heard that expression? I don't know, some of you, I mean, my age, you're nodding. Yeah, you've heard that. I don't think it's used so much anymore. But a man of convictions is someone who believes right and wrong, and he will operate upon the fact that he believes that's right and that's wrong. That's what operating a person of conviction means. It means that I am convinced of the right and the wrong. And because I'm convinced, my actions will show you what I believe. That's actually the word that's used here in the Greek. It means to convince, to bring to light, and to expose to truth. 
So what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit's going to come and the Holy Spirit's going to show the world that Jesus is righteous and that they are not. They have sin. And judgment is coming because this world's judged. Right? The Holy Spirit's job is to convince everybody in the world, including believers, that thank God. Thank God the Holy Spirit does come to convict believers. Now, I want to make one thing clear. The Holy Spirit comes to convict, never to condemn. The Holy Spirit does not condemn. In fact, Romans tells us, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts. Conviction is saying, you can do better than this. Condemnation is, you'll never be better than this. There's a difference. If you hear the voice of condemnation in your head, that's not the Holy Spirit. You know, you'll never do, you, you can't do this. You'll never understand the Bible. It's just beyond you. You're just stupid. You'll never hear the, you'll never do Oh, God doesn't speak to people like you. Well, if those people knew who you really were, they wouldn't even want to talk to you. Right? That's condemnation. That's not conviction. Conviction is, come on, you know better than that. You could do better. Come on, I'll help you. Right? That's the Holy Spirit. He's here as the helper. He convicts, doesn't condemn. There is a difference. Okay, but... He's here to convict us. And why that's so important is because without conviction, there is no repentance. And boy, repentance has left the church. I don't hear very much about repentance anymore. I don't know if I've preached on repentance very much. Now, repentance is a very big word because that's how preachers say it, right? We can make repent a three-syllable word. Repent, right? We're good at that. Preachers are good at that. You need to repent. We'll slam Bibles, right? Make, we'll jump up and down and really get, really get agitated. Um, but repent is actually a very simple word. Repent means turn around and go the other way. If you're driving along and you got the old GPS on and it says make a U-turn if possible, that's repentance, folks. You have gone down the wrong path and it's trying to get you to go back that way. Have you noticed they don't do that anymore, by the way? Because it used to be a big joke that you would like, miss a turn it would say or you would take a different route it would say like for 15 minutes turn you turn around turn around turn around turn around turn around and i guess they heard that that bothered people so now they don't they do something worse they reroute you have you seen this so you're driving along i'm going to be there in 20 minutes honey. i'll be right there oh 100 an hour and a half what happened you well you missed a turn and it doesn't want you to turn around because apparently that bothered people right we don't want to repent not even when we're driving uh, we, we are so against repentance now in our society that we would rather drive 45 minutes out of our way to not say I took a wrong turn. And it's like nuts. And, and so I, I really believe that's, that's a problem. I mean, we have kind of raised up a generation that never has to repent for anything because they never do anything wrong. And if, if, if you don't do something wrong, why in the world do you need to repent? And if you don't repent because you didn't do anything wrong, what does that mean? That means you're going to do it again. Why wouldn't you? There's nothing wrong. In fact, I'm now uncovering one of the biggest arguments my wife and I have in our life, right? Because she's convinced every time she comes, she's convicted. She can, she's convinced every time she comes to me, I'm going to tell her, oh, that's not my fault, right? I didn't do that. Uh, you're, you're mistaken, you know, that you don't understand. And she goes, you know, I wish you would just admit when you make a mistake, it would be so much easier. I thought, oh, no, I'm not falling on that trap because you women don't forget anything. You know, I'll, I'll be here about that forever, you know. So, so we've got battle lines drawn, right? Uh, but when, when she comes to me and she has something heavy on her heart, you know, she wants me to do differently because I've done the wrong thing. What she really wants is to hear me say, 
I was wrong and I repent. You know, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go back the other way. I'm going the wrong way. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go back. Now, she doesn't hear that very much, right? But um, that's what she's hoping for. What she doesn't want to hear me say is, I didn't do anything wrong. What, are you nuts? That's, I was right. I have no idea. Well, but, and so let me give you one of mine. Uh, and this is something every day, pretty much, I'm a creature of habit in some ways. Uh, I start my day um, the same way. And that's because I'm so tired in the morning. I can't think. So I have to know what I'm going to do in the morning. And I start, I used to say that I start my day every day. I get a toasted peanut butter and jelly sandwich, thing of yogurt, thing of coffee. And I sit down until I wake up, right? Um, but I've been watching Chopped with my wife. And so now I know not to call it a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So um, I actually have a pureed nut spread with strawberry relish reduction <laughs> paired with a brioche bun. Uh, um, it doesn't matter though, but my, my dog hates bread. I have no idea why. I've tried to give him my, I saved the LDB, you know, the last delicious bite. I save it for him. I give it to him. He licks it and throws it down. Like, I'm not eating that. Like, what's this, a dog biscuit? I don't know what this is. And I try to show it to him and he's like, yeah, it's still a PBJ. I don't care what you call it. It's still a PBJ, right? So I make, I make this thing every day, and I you know, get all my ingredients, and for some reason, for the longest time, I left the peanut butter out when I would make it. I don't know why I put everything else away, but for some reason, I left the peanut butter out. Guess who gets to put it away when I don't put it away? Well, the only other person living in my house, of course, and so she tells me about it one day, and she says, um, why don't you ever put the peanut butter away? Why do I have to come and put the peanut butter away? I, I don't know. And at first I thought it was no big deal. How hard is it to put peanut butter away? And her response is, if it's not hard, why don't you do it? You know, <laughs> why, why am I doing it every day? I, why can't you remember to do it? And remember, if there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, you're going to do it again. And this is why she was getting, and she starts amping it up, right? Because she could tell this isn't affecting me. You know, I was like, I don't and she, she, needs, she needs me to see the sin in my life, so I'll repent of it. You know, if you don't think it's wrong, then why are you ever going to stop doing it? And she's, I'm tired. I need you to see this is wrong. You should put your own darn peanut butter away, right? And, and so um, I got better at it. I'm very, very good at it. And, and so now we have a situation where she says, you didn't put the peanut butter away. I'm like, no, I, I'm sure I did. You know, I, I'm sure I did that. And then she'll say, well, let's look. Oh, that's the scariest thing in the world, isn't it, guys, right? <laughs> when you look for something and your wife says, well, let's go look for it together, like, you know. And, and I walk in, and sure enough, I see it sitting right there, and I'm like, you know. Like, no, God! No, God, please, no! 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 But she would rather see this behavior, I didn't actually do that, than me going, so what, right? Because if I'm doing this, you know, she may be worried about my, my health, but, but if I'm doing this, she knows that I see the same problem she sees, right? That it's there, and it shouldn't be. And we agree on that. We totally agree on that, and I just didn't do it. This is why she wants to see this. Not because she wants to, not because she wants to, you know, have tears in my eyes, but because she wants to see repentance. Here's what she doesn't want, an apology. Apology is okay once, twice. We live together. Apologies get old pretty fast, right? She doesn't want my apology for not doing it. She wants me to do it. She doesn't want an apology. She wants repentance. Listen, God neither needs nor wants your apology. He requires your repentance. God does not say apologize to me and be saved. 
He's not saying this because he wants to feel, you to feel better. See, how many times is an apology just one of those to make me feel better? God doesn't need to feel better. He needs you to understand that your sin is what put his son on the cross. It's got to stop. It has to stop. He wants to bring us to righteousness. And if you're going the wrong way, did you notice this? Have you ever been driving and you're going the wrong way? You never get where you're going. You never get back to where you need to be. And if you do, you're really, really late. The further you drive down the wrong way, the harder it's going to be to get back to where you need to get. And sometimes you just never do get there. You run out of time. What he's saying is you're going the wrong way. You need to repent and come back. I don't need you to keep going the wrong way and tell me you're sorry you're going the wrong way. God says, I, I don't need that. That's not why Jesus died. Jesus didn't die for your apology. He died for your righteousness. And you will never get righteousness if you keep going the same way you're going. And the Bible tells us over and over again, repent and be saved. Repent and return. Turn back to God. Repent, repent, repent. And we've turned that into, I'm sorry, God. I'm going to do it again tomorrow, but I'm sorry today. Believe me, this time I'm really sorry. I really am sorry. Do you have someone like that in your life? that just keeps doing the same thing over and over and again, keeps telling you I'm sorry, gets real old real fast. Do you know how many times God has heard you say that? Me say that? Do you know what God thinks about it? I don't need your sorry. I need your repentance. I'm trying to work something out in your life. I'm trying to make you righteous. And I can't do that if you just keep saying I'm sorry. What I need for you to do is say, no, I'm not going to do that again. I repent. That's what we need to be. And if, if we don't understand that, we'll never get there. I'm going to give you three quick scriptures to show you repentance. And believe me, I could have come with a lot more. In Matthew, this is Jesus. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. What did he say when he preached? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. I'm here. Time to repent. You, know, you had an excuse before, but not now. The Son of God is walking on earth. Now is the time to repent. Right now. I am here. The kingdom of heaven is hand. Repent, repent, repent. Uh, Peter he understood. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient. He's trying to let you understand why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Here's why. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all come to repentance. Not salvation. Repentance. Salvation follows repentance. He's saying he wants everybody to repent. He'll take it from there, but they have to repent. And so he says, and then in the book of Acts, he says, look, therefore, this is during one of the sermons, repent and return. It's like, turn around, come back. Come back to the God who loves you. Repent and return in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God wants to bring you back and refresh you, re-strengthen you, and remake you. It is only repentance that can lead us to righteousness. We're not called to be sorry. We're called to be righteous. That's what salvation is for. In the book of Romans... Paul talks about his struggle. This is what really frustrates me about this radical grace stuff. Apparently, Paul didn't know about it. Apparently. Because this is what he says in Romans. Sin has to be recognized for what it really is. It used what is good to bring about my death. And he's talking about his love for God. He really had, a, he, I mean, Paul started off, he had a real love for the Lord and the word. And sin used that to pull him into pride and pull him into becoming a Pharisee. And he actually persecuted the church. He says he actually, it actually used what was good to pull me into death. We know that the law is holy, but I am not. I had become a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do what I hate to do. 
That doesn't sound to me like somebody who's okay with his sin. Sounds to me like somebody who's saying, I need to repent every day. I know there's nothing good in my desires which are controlled by sin. I want to do what is good, but I can't. I don't do the good things I want to do. I keep on doing the evil things I don't want to do. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. He's describing my life. You know, I'm glad to hear Paul has these problems too, because this is my life. When I want to do good, evil's right there. Deep inside me, I find joy in God's law, but I see another thing working in me. It fights against the law of my mind. It makes me a prisoner of sin. What a terrible failure I am. The old King James, oh, what a wretched man am I. You know, the old King James. And then he says this, who will save me from this sin that brings death to my body? I give thanks to God who saves me. He saves me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But Paul's saying, I need to keep coming. I need to repent. When I do this, I need to come back to the Lord, come back to the Lord, come back to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is here to help you. He's going to help you. He convicts you when you're wrong and he helps bring you back. But he actually has another job that he's doing as well. And Paul tells about this in the next chapter of Romans, chapter eight. The same way the Holy Spirit helps us when we are weak. We don't even know what we should pray for, but the Spirit himself prays for us. He prays through groans and utterances too deep for words. Have you ever heard, what a prayer to- ever heard of something called a prayer tongue? This is how he describes his prayer tongue. It's not very, very melodic, is it? You know? Groans and utterances. He's saying, sometimes I don't even have to pray. I let the Spirit pray for me. The Holy Spirit is there to help us in so many ways. God who looks in our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit prays for God's people just as God wants him to pray. And we know, this is a famous verse, that all things work together f- for the good. But watch this, because you hear that quota, right? All things work together for good. You hear non-Christians say it. It'll be on magnets. Everything works out for the best. You ever heard that? Really? In what planet do these people live on? Everything always works out for the best? Is that how your life's gone? It's not how my life's gone. I've seen a lot of things crater in my life. I've seen it crater in other people's lives too. This is something you say to kids, I guess, when you want them to grow up thinking that Disney's real, right? But this is not what the verse says. It doesn't say everything's going to work out for your best. Don't worry about it. That's not what it says. It says this, everything works together for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Here's here's where everything works out for. You really love God and you are coming after him and you want to do his purpose. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those people, he says, everything's going to work out for because you're going to come to God and come to God and come to God, right? According to that, God planned that those he'd chosen would be conformed to the image of his son. The Holy Spirit's job is to remake you in the image of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to change. It's a glorious thing that God finds us where we are and accepts us where we are. But it's even more glorious thing. He doesn't leave us there. He changes us. He brings us into his fullness. He says, you know what? You need to be more like Jesus. Yes, I do. How can I do that? I don't even know. Here's how you're going to do it. You're going to turn that job over to the Holy Spirit because he knows what you need. And you're going to put our hands in the Holy Spirit but it is a constant, constant struggle. And we see that at the very end, Paul's finally getting ready to die. He's writing a letter to his protege, Timothy. And after all this struggle that we hear, see him write about, this is what he finally writes to Timothy. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. 
Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Here's the thing. There is no participation trophy waiting for you in heaven. There is a crown or there is nothing. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us a new vision.